Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over and start using it now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Ernest, what's going on? Traditional universities are outdated and don't teach you how to become an entrepreneur. They just teach you how to become an employee. You go to school for four years and you leave with nothing but debt. But here at EYL University, our curriculum is much different. Our university teaches you real world skills that you can use to gain financial freedom right away. In traditional universities, you learn from professors that have never did what they teach, and they teach you how to become an employee. At our university, we use instructors that are currently successful in a specific field that they teach, and they teach you how to become an entrepreneur. For a limited time only, you can join EYL University for 25% off of the annual membership. Learn about stocks, credit, real estate, crypto, and more. Go to EYLUniversity.com right now and sign up to become an earner. Don't wait, don't hesitate, head over there now. My graduates from my school being Forbes, bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs> <laughs> mic drop, bag drop. Bag drop.
All right, guys, welcome back. EYL, we are in LA, sunny Los Angeles. Yeah. And this is something that we've been looking forward to for a while. It's going to be a dope conversation. So, uh, healthcare. It's actually fitting because we just spoke about this on Market Mondays. How I was just thinking that. Healthcare is the biggest business in the world. It makes up 24% of the American budget, which is the biggest by far. Mm-hmm. Um, second to that is the military, I think, of like 15%. So when you think of businesses, a lot of time we think of, you know, a lot of different industries, but people don't necessarily think of healthcare as a business. It is a business. The biggest business is recession proof. It's everything proof. The people, big business. people always die. People always go to the hospital. People yeah. always, you know, get sick. Um, so it's one of these things that has been around since the beginning of time. So it isn't going anywhere. So today we have the privilege of speaking with not just any entrepreneur, an entrepreneur that has been in the business for a very long period of time and has been extremely successful, um, Tommy Duncan. So you might have heard him when we meant, when we mentioned his name in the Rick Ross interview. Yep. He has a company called Jet Doc, and Rick Ross is an investor. I think he invested like a million dollars into the company, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And um, so we, we mentioned him during that interview, and we spoke about it briefly, but he has a vast career in the health industry. He actually sold his first company a while back, netted about a million, million and a half. And then he sold his other company and netted a whole bunch more money. Yeah, over a hundred million. It's called nine figures. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, um, and now he started Jet Doc. Yeah. So it's a very interesting conversation. I'm sure a very educational conversation. And we'll be remiss if we didn't acknowledge our brother Dame Dash, who. We have a mutual relationship with. So yeah. Dame actually just wrapped up a movie on a Tommy's life called The Prince of Detroit. What up, though? What up, though? <laughs> That's right. So shout out to my brother Dame Dash. We was at his house yesterday, and um, he showed us the trailer to the movie. And uh, he was very excited about it. He's very excited about you as an entrepreneur. You know, gave us some background information. Um, so shout out to Dame. Yeah. Shout out to Dame. So first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, no, it's good to be here, man. And it's uh, at Prince of Detroit Film on IG. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got to check it out. Don't. But uh, but here's some something that's funny. You talk about healthcare. It is by far the largest economic engine in this country. Mm-hmm. But it's ugly money. So no one really pays attention, to it, pays attention to it. You know, it's not entertainment, anything sexy like that. But I just got back from Paris for Fashion Week. It's at the hottest show, Balmain. And I was there with a group of... 10 couples, which were the VIP clients for the country. And out of those 10 couples, at least five of the dudes were in healthcare. Oh. So you think about fashion, all this sexy shit, you know, Cardi's there, Offset and all that stuff. Yeah, that's a part of it too. Yeah. But the folks with the money is actually spending, they're in healthcare, right? So like Rashad, I live 10 minutes from where we are. And um, my neighbors, most of them are in healthcare. That's interesting. <laughs> we're, in, we're in Hollywood. They yeah. ain't in Hollywood. They in healthcare. Yeah. So how'd you get started? All right, you, you're, you're, you're a black man from Detroit, Michigan. Um, so how did you get started in healthcare? Because the interesting thing that Dane was telling us, he was like, make sure you ask him about this. Like, it was like his family is already in the business. Like, yeah. he actually already had the information and the knowledge. And um, he grew up in the industry. And that's something that's very rare. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially in our community. Like, we don't even go to the doctor majority of the time. And we have a bad relationship with medicine, unfortunately, and doctors. Um, so let alone actually being in the business. Yeah. So how did that go about as far as your family and then you growing up in that? Yeah, so I did. You know, my mother was um, always been in healthcare, and she got with my stepfather in about 1990. So at the time I was 10 years old, 
and he was entrepreneurial, she was academic. They came together and ended up buying a hospital. It's one of the last black, for-profit black-owned hospitals. What's the name of it? It was called Southwest Detroit Hospital, but they renamed it United Community Hospital. Mm. They bought it from HUD. It was a $75 million hospital when it was built, but they bought it for $2 million because mm. wow. it was in receivership, bankruptcy. So they bought that, and then they coupled it with a HMO, health maintenance organization, essentially an insurance company for low-income people, people on Medicaid. So they operated that through the 90s. And then, so when they operated, I grew up in it. So literally when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I was on the sales team and I would go door to door in the projects um, in you know, different communities where there was a large population of people and go door to door and ask people to sign up for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. My parents' company was called Ultimate. So I grew up selling people on health insurance for low income. And then the other time I spent, I was actually at the hospital painting the basement, being a janitor and all that kind of stuff. But through that, by osmosis, I learned the business. And uh, through the 90s, they had a business. I think at their apex, they're doing about $40 million a year in revenue, which at the time was a whole lot of money. You know, now things are different. There's a lot more money out here. But then that was a lot of money. They employed the most black people for any black business. And that's how I grew up, you know. Uh, then I went to Florida a m got my MBA okay. in five years. FAMU. FAMU. Yeah, Rattlers. He went there for a year, yeah, okay. yeah. Who did my brother. All right, what happened? He got homesick. He went to St. John's, went back to New York. He got homesick from fam? <laughs> I ain't never heard that. <laughs> I, y'all probably was there around the same time. Nah, that's his story. That ain't what really happened. <laughs> that's what he told y'all. No, you probably got some babies running around. Tallahassee. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the fam was amazing. But I came back with my MBA, and I thought I was going to take my family's business to the next level, and unfortunately, around the same time, they end up losing everything. Hmm. So, you know, what most black businesses do, particularly then without mentorship, which is what you all are providing, which is what is missing in our community, is mentorship. So what happens for us is those that are entrepreneurial gumption go out, and then usually, like anybody else, we are met with failure, right? It doesn't go right. And then a lot of times, unfortunately, we don't try again Hmm. because we're scarred financially, emotionally, and all that kind of shit. Excuse me, all that kind of stuff. But that's what the wisdom is, is when you have the challenge. And so the right thing to do is come back into it and try again, do it smarter and be successful. But most people, for whatever reason, don't do that. Um, but my parents ended up investing everything in a hospital and HMO. So much so that when it all went under, they had no money in the bank. Like they put up the house. All, that, all, all the assets was in the business. They put it all in there. So we had the biggest house in Detroit. They literally put it up trying to save the hospital when it started going under versus realizing your business is important, but it's not you. It's separate. It's a separate entity. So treat it as such. But of course they didn't. And then it was just like, uh, you know, uh, American gangster. When he sees out. Huh? Which part? When he lost the house. They lost the house. They lost the furs and everything. The the diamond. My mother had a 12 carat diamond ring, probably worth a million dollars now. Had to hawk it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Lost everything. But for me, then I decided, you know, I'm going to take it and just build my own company and live on a legacy. So I did it. So I did that. 26, I started my own healthcare company, my first one. Yeah. And then uh, sold it about a year later. That was CCS? CCS, Care Compensation Specialist. Yeah. So what was that? What, what kind of company was that? So there was this dude who used to work for my parents selling insurance. Like I remember mentioned going door to door for Medicaid. Well, he was a real smooth guy. Kind of looked like a DeBarge brother. 
<laughs> he uh name uh, I can't name the name, but anyway, he I heard that he had started his own company doing Medicaid enrollment for hospitals. So he had got this partnership with the CEO of a hospital in Detroit, and the whole business was someone's uninsured. By law, the hospital has to take care of them, no matter what the case is, that they have no ability to pay. But then if you could do the paperwork to get that person enrolled in Medicaid, so the ID, you know, doctor bills, birth certificate, things to prove to the state who they are, Medicaid would then retroactively reimburse the hospital for services. And he would charge like 20% of the reimbursement. Mm-hmm. Which you could have a, a NICU baby cost a million dollar bill, be a million dollar bill. Right? So if you're getting 20% of that, you made $200,000 just doing paperwork. Yeah. He was making so much money, it was crazy. Like, he literally was married and bought a big house and moved his girlfriend to the house with his wife and his kids. She let the girlfriend live with the- That's the kind of money he was making. Everything, you could, anything with enough money. In true, Detroit? True Detroit play. I'm saying, when you're in Detroit, you make money like that? <laughs> yeah. And now, my household, they ain't gonna ride, but I'm saying, like, in Detroit, yeah. at the time, he literally moved his girlfriend in with his wife. He had palm trees flown in, he was making money, but- <laughs> My whole thing was in the, in the D where it's cold ten, 10 months out of the year. <laughs> but, but the whole thing was he had lost it because they had found out that CEO was in his pocket mm. or vice versa. And so he lost the contract. And so me, ear to the street, okay, boom, I'm going to go figure out how to, I'm going to get the contract. So I went and met with his chief operating officer and persuaded her to come work with me. And then I did some other things, get a contract. And that's how I started my first company. Can we go back just for a second? Because you were obviously born into the healthcare industry, but you, your entrepreneurial journey had a lot of stops. Yeah. Right? So I know that, that you had the ice cream truck at FAMU. Did. You did the, the fish and sandwich. What did you learn from those businesses that said, you know what, this isn't going to work? Because you admittedly said they didn't work, but you learned yeah. and said, let me go back to my passion. No, nah, for sure. So um, ice cream truck, like you said, you know, I was doing that. Because to my surprise, I mean, how are you in Florida that don't have ice cream trucks? In Detroit, it's, ten, it's cold two months out of the year, and you have ice cream trucks during the summertime. So I had my Tahoe converted to an ice cream truck. I was playing Masterpiece Ice Cream Man, <laughs> which was, you know what I mean, the biggest song on the radio at the time. Fitting. <laughs> but you got to have, like, with ice, you got to have hot ice. And Anyway, um, it, then my ice cream was melting, and I really didn't like it. Like, I, was, I enjoyed being the dude who pulled up in the Tahoe with the ice cream man playing, but I didn't like the process of working on the ice cream itself. Yeah. Um, then I ended up starting these, rest, these uh, sandwich shops, the fries, Palm Fritz, uh, fries and the cones. I was in Amsterdam in the coffee shops, drinking a lot of coffee, came out, and I was hungry for whatever reason, and at these fries and the cones, I'm like, I'm about to be the next Ronald McDonald, I'm about to bring this stuff to the United States, I'm about to kill McDonald's. But I came back and I did it, and I quickly realized, even though I could grow the business, because I could sell. I didn't like coming in, you know, having a machine where I had to cut and peel the fries. It was too much work. And then you have people complain, then the grease gets dirty. It's just, I didn't like the business itself. So even though I had built them, I didn't like it. So they ultimately all failed. Even though I got in the airport, I was 22, I had a restaurant in the airport. I was in the mall, I was on the street side next to uh, uh, Florida State. I didn't love the business, so it wasn't working. Um, and then I got lost in the business too, right? So what can happen if it's not working the way I planned, which be the next Ronald McDonald, right. I started doing different things. I lost my way. So then I added shrimp to the menu, right? Because, you know, black folks love shrimp. I'm, yeah. like, I'm up late. I'm open late. I need to have fried shrimp. Well, then I started, I was in Florida, so I said, let me do some Caribbean things. And I had some Caribbean food, some rice and beans. So before you know it, I lost my way with the company, with the business, so ultimately failed. 
Um, but then I went back, came back to Detroit, and I came into healthcare because I knew healthcare. I knew it without even knowing that I knew it. Mm. You know, like, so the biggest decisions I made in my last company that I sold to Blue Cross, I knew just through osmosis living, I mean, just living my life as a kid, remembering decisions that my parents made in their healthcare business. Yeah, so you ended up selling the first business, right? But you didn't just take cash, right? So it was like a stock option. And well, my first healthcare business. Yeah. I got stock options. So it's a funny story. Uh, I don't know if you want the whole story, but long story short, this company, I was doing back-end work because I didn't get a primary contract. I was doing back-end. So basically, their primary vendor, if they couldn't get folks enrolled in Medicaid, they gave me the second shot. I was a garbage man. But for me... Of course, I got them all approved because that was my opportunity. And through doing so, this big company who just was on its pathway to go public had decided they wanted to come visit me and either do one or two things. Do a strategic partnership with me. Where instead of me charging 20% of reimbursement, I charged 8 to 10%, but I would get a bigger volume of work. Mm-hmm. Or they would buy my company. And so they came to visit me. I was in a shared office space uh, like WeWork. Yep. I just had one office. Well, I had like two offices in there. In there. And they had a shared conference room, and I paid people to act like they worked for me. You know, I paid like 40 bucks a day. I gave them a one-pager with, you know, three bullet points. This name of the company, you know saying? This is one page, you know, one line of what we do. And anyway, so I sold those folks, and they didn't want to act like they worked for me. But I sold the people on buying my company and uh, got stock options. So they made me a senior director. They gave me, which at the time I was paying myself 40 grand a year. My own company, they paid me 200000 a year. I was 27. And they gave me a million some dollars in stock. Yeah, that's what Dean was telling us. He was like, make sure you ask him about that. He started a company with a, a virtual uh, Regis office and sold the company. Da, 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 da. I did it twice, though. Rashad. <laughs> that was my first time. Second time, I won a half billion dollar contract. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was at work. You know what I'm saying? By the dumpsters on the phone, like sneaking. <laughs> yeah, and I did that. So how did you do that? I had that? a Regis office space. So, uh, all, right, so all right. Let's let's get into that situation. So you 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 started the company, but in order for the company to be sold, it had to have looked like more than what it actually was. Right. So that's why you got the Regis office space, which anybody doesn't know what Regis office space. Regis is like a shared office. Well, it makes I try and do some business in Georgia, and uh, to be like a subcontractor. But I learned quick. Learn there's no real money. So here's one thing I, I'll clarify: is my lane has been healthcare. That's really the niche of government contracting because really that's what I was doing. Once I got on the side in my last company, I was contracting with the government. So um, there was this company who I was going to be there, this sub who's trying to do some work in Georgia. And I quickly realized there was no big money in that. So I want to get the Medicaid managed care because Obamacare just passed, which meant more people on Medicaid, which because of the way I grew up, I knew more folks on Medicaid meant more people in Medicaid managed care. So let's just break this down. Medicaid is uh, the government program health insurance. Yes. For people, low income people. Yes. So you get commissions if you sign people up for Medicaid? Well, no, the way it works is if you actually own the insurance company, which is what my parents had. That's providing the Medicaid. Right. And then I got it. So here's what happens. The government has the money and they're responsible for paying all the bills for people on Medicaid. All right. Well, What's happened is you had the providers, the hospitals and doctors and service providers, would just bill the government. Overbill them two or three times for the same service, bill, you know, 
Somebody could be ER level five, but they um, ER level two, which means not that sick, but they'll bill ER level five, means super sick, they'll get more money for it. So they would double bill, triple bill, do too much. And so the government decided in order to manage the spending, they need to put a police mechanism in the middle to police the providers. Mm -hmm. And those are the Medicaid managed care insurance companies. So they contract with us and they pay us a health insurance premium per member per month they assign to us. So in DC, my first contract, my first month, I got, they assigned me 30,000 people. They're paying me roughly, you know, $5,000 a year. So they paid me a hundred, so I was getting like $12 million a month. $5,000 a, a person. person? Per year. Per, a person per year. Yeah. yeah. And I had, and they assigned me 30,000 people. So you do the math, that's 150 million a year divided by 12, like 12 million a month. First contract. Before that, I have to pay all the hospital bills though. So anytime my member goes to the hospital, the doctor, the dentist, gets prescriptions, emergency transportation, non-emergency transportation, I'm paying for everything. And if those bills are greater, and they have my costs, my administrative costs to pervert, provide the service, marketing, et cetera, if my costs are greater than what I got paid from the government, I lose money. Okay. So I'm at risk. But if they're lower than, I make money. Hmm. Okay. So, so, yeah. No, so are there things that you can do, obviously, to prevent? Yeah. Yeah, so what, like, what are some of the things? I that was you- out cold. I was the coldest with it. So the average company in my industry was doing 1.7% profit margin. So you round up to 2%, that's 2%. On 150 million, it's like $3 million a year, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's the profit. Profit. Right. And, and, and there's some advanced accountants that look at all the past utilization patterns. How many times you go to emergency room? How many times you go inpatient? It means they spend a night in hospital at least one night. How many folks are homeless? And they have, how many folks have diabetes? How many folks, you know, need a transplant? And they make all these assumptions <laughs> to say, okay, well, we expect your cost to be X, so therefore your profit can be 2%. But of course, me... Because, Troy, you're the same way I, I believe. If somebody gave you, and I got my company up to 200 million in revenue. So if somebody gave you 200 million dollars in revenue, yeah. by the way, a lot of companies lose money. Like United was losing money. Yeah. Are you going to make money or lose money? I'm going to make money. Right? Yeah. I, I, For sure? It just hit me. It just hit you me. Give me 200 million dollars. <laughs> I'm about to make some money. Yeah. And I'm going to make a whole lot of money. Yeah. So they was making 2%, I was making 10. And then my 10 was rounding down. So I was making like 20 million a year, and I should have made 4 million a year. How come, how come you was able to make way more higher profit margins than them? Because big companies are built with mediocre, mediocre people. Right? So Blue Cross Blue Shield and these big companies, United Healthcare, Centene, they're big. And like every big company, it's just mediocre, right? Because no one really gives a shit because they don't own it. But me, I own 40% of my company. So if I make 20 million, 8 million is coming to Tommy Duncan's pocket. You feel me? If I make 4 million, I'm only getting 800,000. So what I'm going to do? I'm about to make the 20. How do I do it? I'm going through the data. So I became an actuary in my own mind. It's so like I said before about like the food business. I didn't like it. I like the process of it. Yeah. So I wasn't going to become a cook or a chef. I didn't like it. But in this business, I love this shit. So I became an accountant to a degree, an advanced accountant called actuary. So I looked at all of my data, identified, okay, well, who's cost me the most money by individual and by, um, by category. So I'll give an example. I identified that um, <clears throat> anyone who was in my membership had any condition. They could be a type 2 diabetic. They could be on dialysis, whatever the case may be. But if they were also homeless, they cost me 5X more expensive. So no matter what condi- the condition they had, if they were also homeless, I cost, cost 500% more. So what I decided to do is identify all of my members that were homeless and put together programs to get them into housing. Simple thing. Yeah. 
So I had this meeting. I had 40 people there because it was an open meeting, and I kind of lead from the front. I'm a, a ground-up guy, so let's all talk. Everybody gets respect in, in the floor. And what I quickly realized is because of that safe environment, two women raised their hand and said, I had actually been homeless in D.C. And homeless with a kid. So they gave me the real. So I thought I had the bright idea. It was wrong. They gave me the real lay of the land. We put together plans in place. We reduced our homelessness by 50%. So out of all the metrics and data in our industry of healthcare, the only metric that we needed to focus on was getting folks that were homeless into housing. It seemed simple, right? We did it. Cost came down by 50%. And our profitability went up directly. So yeah. you, that's dope. Let's, let's just yeah. go into that for a minute. So just by actually looking at the numbers, you realize that the homeless people was, was actually costing you a lot more money. So you you got to keep them on. So the way to solve it is housing. That's which right. There are housing programs. Right. But it's just a matter of most CEOs aren't really interested in community outreach and trying. Right. So you actually going hand in hand and getting these people and saying like, look, we can get you a house da, 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 and we can put you in a shelter. Yep. And that way, not only are you getting them off the street, but you actually increasing your profit revenue yeah. as well. That's why I was, I, was, I was like, I get it. Once you said it, I'm like, I, I get it. You do the programs for the homeless. That's right. You create exercise classes. That's right. You create nutrition programs, more entry people, less people have to go to get any type of treatment or have to go increase the expenses. True, 100% right. So we actually built these community centers called outreach centers in the hood. So in the toughest neighborhood in D.C., we had four of them all throughout the district. And most of these companies, call them corporate, call them whatever you want to call them, they ain't stepping foot in the hood. And their employees aren't. So we ended up attracting people that were comfortable being in the hood. And I call it the hood, but when you're around the people that you're serving, you can affect them because you're actually communicating with them. And you get them, you build a trust where they actually pay attention to what you are putting forth. They know the resources. And their behaviors change for the positive. So, so yeah. that's how you was able to increase just looking at stuff like that. Yeah. Is that Studying the analytics. So you went from 1%. Well, the average was 1%. 1.7. And so that's how you got to the 10%. I was over 10. Killing it. Killing them. But the problem is, and I actually wrote a book trying to change the, um, the policy for Medicaid in the country. I, I sent it to you. It's called uh, The Trillion Dollar Medicaid Monster. It, it addresses um, single payer, everything you've, you've heard about politically that no one fully understands. It addresses mm -hmm. all of it. Simplifies it. And I took it to the person that runs, ran Centers for Medicare and Medicaid for the country to change policy. I gave him three policies to change. And he told me there's no way he could do it because one of the policies is affected into law through Obamacare. And it'd be too hard to change policy. Um, but what that policy is a mandatory medical loss ratio requirement. What that means is, remember, the government pays us a health insurance premium per member per month. 5000 per year, break it down per month, 400 bucks per month per person. Mm -hmm. Tracking? Well, let's use a five grand for, per year number. The requirement is that 85% of that money has to be spent on direct cost of care. So hospital, doctor, pharmacy. Then I get, you know, whatever, 12% left, 13% left to cover my administrative expense and a 2% profit margin. But the mandatory medical loss ratio is the 85%. Well, if you do the things that I was doing, get people who are homeless in the housing, reduce cost of care, then you're going to be less than 85%. Because I'm thinking, like, if you did it in D.C., this model seems like it could be scalable, right? Like, question, why can't we do it Detroit, New York City? Well, because it's political. It's hard to win the contracts. Mm. You know, it's a big game. So let me tell you how, let me tell you something else about to the entrepreneurs out here. Go to where the opportunity is. I feel like 
a lot of times what we do as individuals, not just black, but just in, in general, is we believe whether whoever our God is or our universe is, you know, is all on us, right? So God blesses us and it's just wherever we are. But the truth is the environment has a big impact on your opportunity. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. And I was in Detroit, ain't no money in Detroit. D.C. is a special place. And a lot of black folks who have been successful come through D.C. A lot of them. You look them up. Most of them. Guys who started BET, you go through, you really look at black folks who have made it big. Most of them spent time in D.C. And the reason is because D.C. is the only place that has a governor's budget, but is black ran. So you look at any other state in this country. You go look at New York City. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, and to a degree, it may not really matter. You look at uh, Atlanta, Georgia. You go to Detroit, Michigan. You got all these, you know, big cities which have a black mayor, but the mayor budgets are small because the governor, Cause the governor yeah. got the money. Yeah. Governors got more money they can actually push move right. than the president of the United States because mm. they are like the biggest CEOs in this country, but no one talks about it. So, how many black governors do you know? None. Come yeah. on, why is that? They control the money. Sorry. They control the money. Governors control the money. Let me tell you, out of the city of Atlanta, because I spent time there, but any city, a big contract would be a million dollars. You get a contract with the airport, you got a concession, you say, maybe you make a half million dollars a year. It's big. Any contract over three million, so three, four, five million, it'd be construction. But the problem with construction for an entrepreneur is that there's a lot of expenses in construction. You gotta have equipment, you gotta have a million people, you can't make any profit. But the governor's control, let me watch this. Watch this. The second largest procurement in history of the United States was Georgia Medicaid. I'm sorry, was uh, Florida Medicaid three years ago. It was a $120 billion contract. Right now, over the next three months, California's putting out their Medicaid contract. Medicaid, what I was doing, it's going to be a $200 billion contract. $200 billion over five years. $200 billion over five years. Medicaid, what I was doing. Who controls that? The governor. I mean... You don't have to get a big piece to get a lot of money, but D.C. is special because D.C. It's governor's budget. It's the governor's budget, and the mayor is the governor, and she's a black woman. That's before because, her, it was a black man. So it's the District of Columbia, so it's not a state. Yeah. So it's a territory. So but got the budget. The mayor is technically the governor, in a sense. And they got the budget. Is the budget the power. Budget based on population? How, how do they determine the budget yeah. for, based on Many population? Places. In yeah. tax base. Yeah, okay. But D.C. is a beautiful place. It's small with a big tax base. And uh, they got the power. And then the other thing D.C. did through uh, former mayor for life, Marion Barry, is, was the first place to institute a real program. And maybe Georgia did it, but D.C. did it powerfully, where every contract that comes out of D.C. has to have 30% minority participation. Now, they, what happens there is a lot of times the black companies will come in and try to do small shit, do small things, right? Mm-hmm. Unintentionally, but they'll do janitorial service. They'll do marketing, HVAC, contract, stuff like that. HVAC. They'll do printing. But they ain't no money. I mean, relatively speaking. Yeah. What I was doing, I came in as a prime. And I got the prime contract. So I was getting $200 million a year out of D.C. government. Well, the problem with the companies that, that like I had is I couldn't find a, a, a smaller black business to give a contract to that was worth 30%. They couldn't do the work. They didn't have the infrastructure. They weren't trying to do anything worth the bigger spend. But D.C., let me tell you, right now, the Medicaid contracts, because they did an expansion, D.C. right now is probably $3 billion a year. Just little, little old D.C., $3 billion. Well, of that, 30%, how much is that? 
almost a billion dollars, yeah. has to be spent with minorities. But how much you really think is being spent with the minority companies in D.C.? I can tell you because we had to do hearings because there wasn't enough to spend. Probably 10, no more than 10 million, not even 10, 5, 5 million. 5 million from a billion. Not even that much. I'm saying it's like. It's just not the companies not aren't there. there. The companies aren't there to do the work. And look, it, I mean, we put game in the system by putting money in a black bank, but that's not really spending money. That's just money sitting. And even that's like small. But anyway, my points are that the, there's opportunity all over the place, particularly in D.C. Yeah. And this way to navigate it, the way that I did it, um, you know, but as an entrepreneur, you should look at your environment, see where you're at. The, the, the skill, I mean, navigating through government contracts is obviously a skill. Where, where did you develop this? Was it watching your parents go through the hospital or was it something that you learned when you were at a VP at your first uh, company? On one side, my experience with my parents, you know, having all these employees, um, you know, all the politicians coming through every day taught me government contracting. Because that's, a lot of it is a sense of, I won't call it a quid pro quo, but some pro quo, right? I mean, there's a, there is a fundamental human principle called reciprocity, mm. right? Mm -hmm. You do for me, I do for you. Mm -hmm. but you ain't doing for me, I ain't doing much for you. Mm -hmm. And the reason you need to get my attention is because you want me to prioritize your priority. I got my own priorities. So in order to do that, you got to incentivize me. My experience at Accretive taught me, trained me. And that's the skill set I deployed when I looked at all of my data and identified which one moved the needle. Right. As I gave the example with the homeless program mm -hmm. and executed and put together operating rhythm to push every day to improve our performance. We had a conversation earlier, Troy, about uh, you're asking me if someone wins the office. I mean, it was Rashad. The question was, well, why would they keep raising money? Yeah. yeah. Well, they keep raising money because they may be borrowing to pay for the TV commercials and they need to pay that money back. The other thing that happens too is they always want to have more money because they can then king make or queen make. So now, let's say the person's mayor or governor, and now they want to handpick city council, right? Mm -hmm. So they want to give that city council member that they want so they know that they'll vote for whatever they, their initiatives are. They need to raise money for them. So they'll take the money that they raise for their campaign and then donate it to king make to kind of build uh, a powerful position in government so they can make decisions, decisions they want to make and help folks that they want to help. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason is if they lose, they got debt. See, if you win, you can always raise money because now folks want to participate with you, right? The business people. But when you lose, then you may have $100,000 in debt, a million dollars in debt, and no one's going to give you any money really because you lost. So they always raise money just in case they lose too. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so, you, so the understanding government relationships and understanding what people want. Now, the other side is training. And Troy, I got my training on, you know, how to operate my business at the highest level through my company at Accretive. Uh, when I sold my company to Accretive, they taught me how to analyze data, um, how to synthesize it, how to analyze and identify out of all of the data points and metrics what actually moves the needle the most, and then create an operational rigor yeah. to push every day to improve performance. Yeah, I think that's incredible, right? A lot of times people hear someone sold their company and they took the cash and they walked away and tried to create a new company, whereas you sold the company, stayed on, and learned yes. skills to help you before you created a new company. That's right. That's incredible. And that's why we killed them. <laughs> yeah. My last company, we killed them. And, and it benefited me financially. So my last company, based upon the size, so if you just look at the metric of 
number of members, which is usually how they value managed care companies, we would have sold our company for $40 million. But because we were so profitable, we sold a company for $120 million. Hmm. And that profitability was, a, uh, was directly driven by, really, the training I received at Accretive to understand the data and then pushing it. So um, what was the last company that you sold? Like, what was it? Same type of services provided? That was insurance. That was insurance. That was a Medicaid health plan. That was a Medicaid insurance company. Trusted, right? Trusted, yeah. yeah. So you was providing the insurance for the Medicaid. Yeah. So people who have Medicaid, they have an insurance company, and I was one of the providers. This is interesting. It's something that I've never even heard of, speaking of, of Medicare. You actually bought a health care plan for Michigan Tenant in 2016? Yeah, Tenant's the largest for-profit health care system in the country. So here's how it goes. It's kind of a mix of both, right? So one, um, there was a person who used to be a Supreme Court justice in Michigan and were very close with my parents. When I, became, when I started my entrepreneurial journey, remember my parents, the other thing about government business is when you're on the positive side where people like you, it's extraordinarily beneficial. But then something can happen where you get on the wrong side of politics. And so my parents got on the wrong side and lost everything. Um, but then I was building my own. This person became a good friend of mine, kind of like a mentor to a degree. And um, it just so happened he ended up becoming the CEO of one of the tenant hospitals in Detroit. And he told me that from corporate, they had made a decision to sell their Medicaid health plan assets. And because of that relationship, he told me about it. And then I contacted a guy who I made chairman of my board. He's a very good friend of mine. Um, I contacted, so my guy who was running the hospital told me. I contacted my guy who is in that world of high-powered executives in healthcare, which none of them are black. Uh, he talked to them, and they, they confirmed, yes, we are looking to sell the asset. And so, you know, within a few months, they sold it to us. What's the type of tag on that? Because I know you later sold it to yeah, Hen- so Henry Ford. We, we bought it for what we had to put in. It's called risk-based capital. I think all in, we probably put in like $13 million, Okay. You know? And then three years later. We sold it for 22 and a half. Yeah. But that was a crazy story. But here's the real story. That ain't the story how much money we made. The real story, Troy, is that we bought it and they gave us these financials which showed it was making $6 million a year in profit. Mm-hmm. Half million a month. Half million a month. Half million a month. <laughs> the first month I owned it, we lost a million dollars. Oh. You dig? Uh-huh. So he sent me an asset with all the financials. It's a big publicly traded company, right? One that you would trust. Half million dollars a month they make it, but somehow my first month I lose a million. Second month I lose another million. Third month I lose another million. So now what's happening my private equity partners are coming to take my company over from me. I got stories for days. Mm. They come to take it from me. They say, now we got to put more money in the company. Of course, Tommy, you can't put the money up, so we got to put the money up. We're going to dilute you down and take your equity and put the money up. And it's becoming hostile because we have our investors whose money in this thing. We got to do what we have to do to retain as much value as we can. So now they start showing up in my office every day, taking over my finance, so put my CFO out the way, took over his office. They come in every day. So I'm like, all right, now I got to fix the problem. So fix problem, how do I do it? Make all my vendors renegotiate their rates with me. Cut everything in half or I'm suing y'all and I'm claiming fraud and everything. So now I call the state of Michigan. So here's what thing, no matter how big the companies are, 
company is. In healthcare, there's one thing that can destroy a company. It's called compliance. So if government believes that a company is not being compliant, they could tank the whole company. And so I proactively called the state of Michigan's insurance bureau, even though I presented as if they called me. I, they didn't. I called them. And I was threatening, well, listen, if the insurance bureau approved them, so what happens is when you're an insurance company, you make a profit. You can't really take your profits out every year. You just retain them. And then when you sell your company, then you get all your money. So when they sold the company, we gave them $13 million. They took like $10 million out the company that they had to retain earnings. So then I contacted the insurance bureau and I threatened. I'll tell you a funny story too. You know, let me tell you the story. So I called the insurance bureau. Say, no, I'm on record calling them to have a meeting. Uh, been in healthcare forever. So we, we go there and I got my private equity partners, right? And they're talking all this shit to me. They're trying to take my company from me. Dudes resign from the board so they can sue me. So I knew that. Do resign from the board, that means they're about to sue me. So they can't sue me being on the board because mm. it's conflict of interest. So I'm like, all right, this is a Jewish guy. They're about to sue me. And I got all these problems. They take it over my company. Anyway, so we go and I got to get my money back. And I don't forget my money back and I renegotiate my vendor contracts. I can save everything. So we get to Dallas and it, all these guys, people come talk all this stuff to me, talk all this stuff to me. We get there and they quiet, scared to talk. But here's the thing. So I threatened the dude. I said, yeah, you know y'all took that money out when you sold the company to me. And, you know, I got to meet with the insurance bureau. They want to meet with me about what happened because they see their financials have deteriorated. So I don't know, but that's the problem. So the dude, he's like, ah, they had this team talking. And I come back. I said, you know, I'm in the insurance bureau. And y'all took that money out. I don't know what they want to talk about. He kind of ignored it again. I said it a third time. He's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He said, God damn it, Duncan, if you threaten me one more time. And I looked at him. I looked out the window. I said, all right, I won't say it again. I just want to make sure you heard me. Came back, I promise you, a day later, and they agreed to give us some money back. Got my money back. And still renegotiated my contracts with my providers who I had to pay, my vendors. So then now, not only did I get my money back, now my costs were lower going forward. So I'm making money. I probably made another twenty million on my. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, um, so then I got my PE partners off of me and saved my company. Ended up being more profitable. And then Henry, but then the company still wasn't making money, and it was it wasn't working. So I was able to get Henry Ford Health System, which is okay. the largest health system in Detroit, right. uh, to buy my company, and I made a profit. So on something that was losing a million dollars a month, that could have tanked everything. DC could have tanked everything. Yeah, I ended up uh, selling for hundred twenty million dollars. They made profits all over the place. And then the very, oh, you want to go ahead. So, yeah, I don't want to just breeze over the $120 million you sold the company for. So, all right. So, what, is the, what was the process of you selling that? Like, when was you saying, okay, this is the time to start actively looking for somebody to buy it? Or did they approach you and talk about that? Like, how you actually value the EBITDA and all of that stuff? Like, how yeah. you value the selling of a company? Because a lot of times people just hear, like, I sold the company. But they don't actually know, like, the yeah. details that go yeah. into selling a company. Yeah, Rashad. So, Okay, first, in our industry, because I, I got so many stories I could tell you, which would be fun, but, um, but in our industry, there is a framework for how you value our companies, right? And it's EBITDA, it's roughly eight times EBITDA, right? So you could value it that way, or as I told you before, you value it on the total number of membership. So call it like a million dollars a member. So you have 40,000 40, members, not a million dollars, but it'd be like $40 million. 
right? Um, or you could do it by EBITDA. So, but what happened with us is I didn't want to sell my company. I wanted to keep it and keep growing it. The problem I ran into is even though we were the highest performer on every metric, we were the most profitable, you know, every metric about getting people healthier, we were the best at it. I couldn't win other states because what I tell you, we had no black governors. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, and you had to have black governor to push to win the contract and we didn't have it. And my PE partners, I didn't want to be diluted, so I don't want them putting up too much money. And then I get diluted down to I'm owning, you know, five, 10% of the company where I built it from scratch. At the time I was owning 40, I want to keep my 40. Mm. So all these different factors. So, um, but then what happened, as I share with you, Rashad. So anyway, so my P firm, when they bought in, so I started the company without private equity. I had a, a partner of mine who I met out here in LA, do a good friend of mine, who arranged to put up the first couple million dollars. And then I ended up having him bought out because relationship Dynamics got difficult to, to manage through. So got him bought out, and when we got bought out, the company was worth $25 million total. So P came in at $25 million, but remember I sold, it was $120 million. But when they came in three years earlier, you know, their whole thing is you make a profit, you create value, then you sell it, and you have this, you know, this gain. So they had been looking to sell the company, but I kept wanting to stay in the game because to me, Shit, if I'm worth a hundred some million dollars now and we're small, if I get bigger, we're worth more, a billion, two billion. I mean, I can keep going. But one thing that I think was a mistake that I made is I started making so much money that I got, uh, got loose and I was just starting to spend too much. So I was sharing with, with Rashad earlier, you know, I did amongst many things. Um, I had this big party in New York City where and I, but I told him I also had Tretch. I had Naughty by Nature. I had... Uh, at, your Christmas, uh, at your Christmas party. Christmas party. I had Genuine. I danced with Genuine. <laughs> doing the moves and shit. I mean, I was... We had Freddie Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> you call it. I had everybody showing up. I was like reinvigorating careers. <laughs> real talk. The first verses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real talk. But, but I'm going to tell you what happened. So when you're in healthcare and government, there's always these fundraisers. There's always small not-for-profits trying to raise money. And it's like this important thing. And all the politicians show up. So I'm at this Christmas dinner. And this one woman who's like CEO of some small not-for-profit organization in healthcare, she comes up to me. She says, yeah, Tommy, here you're making all this money. You know, you're doing real well, huh? And when she made that comment, I knew you I was in trouble. It was, not coming it was just like, remember uh, Mary Gangster? Yeah. yeah, yeah. When my man says put the mink on. Put the mink on and threw, and threw it in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the fireplace. And I'm like, Damn, the word that got out, I'm in trouble. <laughs> it's the Pink Cadillac and Goodfellas. Yeah. Pink Cadillac and Goodfellas. Don't take that shit back. <laughs> yeah. It was. I, bu- I bought a Bentley. When I got to D.C., I had a red uh, 911 because of my first company, but I never drove it, and I sold it because yeah. I had to be low-key. But then you start making so much money, you just can't help yourself. I bought a Bentley. And I'm kind of, I'm driving, look, I'm driving, look, I'm driving like this and shit, like real talk, my hat down, sunglasses on, driving through the city. And it's D.C. is small. <laughs> Well, I, I couldn't, you can't control yourself. You cannot control yourself. It wasn't me. It was a situation. It was a situation itself. Impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. That's why every movie, the same should happen. <laughs> no matter how much advice you get, you can't do it. <laughs> so, but, but, here's, a, here's, oh, a, but here's a real life story. So, right, the pink Cadillac, you know, the chinchilla. When I was growing up, it's about the time we lost everything. And I came back home to try to save it. My stepfather had just sold a piece of property, which was attached to the hospital for $2 million. And he was running around with his $2 million check. 
and he was showing it off. And it was one moment he was in the casino in Detroit, and he and it was this dude, I, I don't mention his name, who my stepfather was bragging to, oh, you know, y'all think y'all hurting me because he was going to bad side of politics. I said, I just got two million, and he's showing his two million dollar check. And I truly believe, and he'll tell you, that was the the start of the full collapse, hmm. right? He was he could maybe fix it, but after that, it just it was a wrap. Because this dude controlled the hospital. He was general counsel for a hospital, and they just started suing the HMO. So long story short, I knew at that moment it was a wrap for me. So therefore, I needed to sell the company to extract as much value as I can before I end up losing everything. And the thing about government contracts in any contract business is it has its positives, its pros, it has its cons. Now, the positives of contract business is that once you have a contract, you got revenue flowing, mm-hmm. right? Boom, revenue flowing. The downside is when you lose your contract, and more revenue flowing, right? So I went from getting $200 million a year coming through to now if I don't have nothing, I lose my contract, I have zero. So I'm not in a situation where I could go from- Very risky. It's all risk. It's all or nothing. It's literally all or nothing, hmm. right? Now, if you're in retail business, which I call like a restaurant or you're selling something or whatever you're doing, and you have customers buying your product and service, they don't just cut you off. You, know, you, you have a real business, right? But in contract, you can lose everything. The problem with the retail is you got to build a big business. I start off, I got a $200 million year revenue, damn near. I mean, it's- Big difference. Big difference. Yeah. You, gotta, y'all, you, know, you got to build, but then when you get it, you're not as much at risk. Contract, you're at full risk. My partners were putting pressure on me to sell it. And I'm like, all right, I need to sell this company before I end up with nothing. Yeah, so you sold January 2020. Yeah. And then you announced three weeks later, JetDoc, which is where you're at now. One week later. One week later. I want to just go back to this quickly. So this is very important um, for people, especially black entrepreneurs, because a lot of times I feel like we have, it's a gift and a curse, but we have a, a deep emotional attachment to our business. And people always criticize, not always, but a lot of times they criticize people. It's like, well, we can never really grow as a community if we keep selling our businesses, da, 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 da. But when you, you have to understand that there's no emotional attachment to business. You have to look at it from a very rational standpoint. And it's like you can sell a business and then scale to another business as yeah. well. So once you saw that, A, they was going to come at you because your lifestyle, and then B, just the risk, you just realized you did a calculation in your head. Yep. And said, it's, it's time to go. That's right. Exactly right. And because of the way I grew up, and, you know, again, my mother had a 12-carat diamond ring that she gave away for practically nothing and all the furs and the cars and the house and everything because they were trying to keep that business open. That clearly was closing. Gave away everything, trying to keep it open. Um, I realized that emotional attachment um, was more of a curse than a blessing. Did you reach out to, to Blue Cross Blue Shield or did they reach out to you to sell it? Like when it was time to sell So they reached out to me. Um, they reached out and then they were trying to get rid of me. So, so, you know, so then the district did this thing where they did an, another procurement, a new contract. So I just won a five-year contract. Like eight months later, they say, no, we're going to do it again. We're going to do another contract. So now you have to go through the process of winning a contract again. I just won. Mm-hmm. So I thought I said for five years, I mean, you know, I can try to grow or whatever. But then eight months later, they put, we're going to do another procurement. After they cut my rates twice. Remember, I was making so much money. So they cut my rates twice, only me. And then they did this new procurement, which to me was a message. They kicking me out. It's a wrap. So, but all love out of D.C. I, you know, Blue Cross uh, connect, connected with me, said they wanted to be in the Medicaid space. 
And the company they bought didn't win the contract. But instead, they were encouraged and not negotiate a good deal. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. So you sell that. And, yeah. then, and then Jet, that's where you're going, right? Yeah, so I was saying. And as you see the walls closing in, yeah. you're already drawing up the vision for the next thing. So talk about that process. I know it's closing in, but here, here comes the next thing, which is Jet Doc, which you announced a week after you sell. Yeah, so I didn't, um, like, you know, I didn't want to sell my company. And I felt like I was being forced out. And not just in D.C., but I felt like I'm the smartest person in healthcare, And I wrote a book to prove it. I really am. No one knows it better than I do because no one's been a founder CEO like I have. So it's one thing you know something because you work for somebody. It's nothing like what y'all doing. You know that. You know what I'm saying? It's different. Yeah. So I knew it. I'm smart. I grew up in it. So I'm fifth. I'm, I'm second generation. I mean, and when my mother and my stepfather started in the business, they were guinea pigging this concept of Medicaid managed care. And of course, they started in the black communities because that's where they guinea pig. But because of that, my parents had the first experience with it. So, like, no one knows the game better than I do. So I felt like I was being put on the sideline of the industry, right? And I was mad about it. And so even though I knew I was about to make this money, I was pissed. And so I started another company. And my plan was to launch this next company a week later and then, you know, shock the world with that. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. I launched it. I, you know, I launched JetDoc February 1st of 2020. Mm-hmm with this concept of telehealth, because I knew that's where the game was going pre-pandemic because I was looking through all my, again, I'm looking through all my claims. Oh, I got a lot of claims, which are little claims, which can be done over telephone versus somebody having to park their car, go into the office, see a doctor for a Zithromag, a Z-Pack. They can do it on the phone, boom, boom, boom. The doctor's not a big risk because it's a Z-Pack. A Z-Pack. It's easy, right? So I knew that's where, when I looked at my claims, I paid over a million claims, you know, boom, this is where healthcare is going. I launched it February 1st on my own technology, building it myself, but then pandemic hits like March 15th, mm-hmm. and I go from being early to late, because now my tech, I'm, I just, I'm a month into building my tech. My tech wasn't ready until, uh, until September, yeah. and I was late, and then I thought, okay, well, I'm still good, so I'm self-financing it, because I want partners, because I had PE partners last time, private equity. Self-finance, I want that, don't let that go over your head, yeah. Well, sometimes it's a good idea, sometimes it's not the great idea, it yeah. depends. But I wanted full control of this. I thought this was going to be like a grand slam. Yeah. I self-financed it. <clears throat> and then I go out here to market. Like, boom, about to kill them. It was right before Labor Day last year. I'm about to kill them. I'm about to give away, you know, free doctor visits. But because I had Stripe on the app, I had to charge at least a dollar. So I'm going to do dollar, dollar doctor visits. And the next morning I wake up, I didn't have that many, you know what I'm saying, people on my app. Why not? I'm spending money on advertising. And I look at all the comments. They think they're... You know, not real doctors, the Dr. Pepper, you know, uh, voodoo doctors, Dr. Dre, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dr. Day, Dr. Dre. It wasn't real. And so people didn't assess value to what I was trying to sell. And really is an amazing value proposition. Actually included discount pharmacy where anyone can go to any pharmacy in the country, get 85% of the cost of medication. It's unheard of. But because I wasn't getting the traction I expected to get, I decided to do celebrity route like everybody else and go influencer. I got with Rick Ross and then we launched this big thing earlier this year. And again, I actually kind of got it working. You know, my number is a hundred people per day. If I get a hundred people a day, sign up for jet doc. It was booming. The subscription model. The problem is I got like 50 people a day. Actually, that wasn't a problem. 50 people a day would have been okay. The problem was that I spent $400,000 that month in advertising. Mm. 
I ain't spending four hundred thousand dollars a month for them fifty people a day. I just can't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, can't justify it. Nah, I ain't doing that. So, <laughs> but that was my problem. Yeah, you know what yeah, I'm saying? yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I had to make another pivot. Business people do if you're gonna be in business. So I pivoted. My pivot was, I'm gonna go back. Remember the guy I told you, who I made chairman of my board, who's at the highest level of healthcare in this country, most probably top ten most powerful people in healthcare in this country, by far. Um, used to run CMS. He's a friend of mine. I hit him about what I'm doing. They gave me a recurring license contract, which is valuable when you're in the tech business. So back to valuation. Service business in healthcare, 8 to 10x EBITDA, which is pre-tax profit. You know what the EBITDA stands for? Yeah, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Okay. EBITDA. Um, so pre-tax profit, 8 to 10x is roughly where you're going to end up services but if you're on tech it's like 22 or something like that ooh, right? yeah john henry john was talking yeah. about that yeah. <laughs> and that's why i want to get a tech that's yeah. what i did to tech <laughs> so they're gonna give me a million dollars a year in recurrent revenue so called times 20 that's 22 million dollar uh, i'm worth 22 million off the top i actually got a valuation of 17 million and that is i'm glad you said that so that is how you value a company it's like the money that you're making, I'm trying to break this down as easy for people to understand as possible. The money that you make after all the expenses and all of that is done every single year, and then you have multiples. So depending on what industry you're in, that will determine your multiple. So you were saying in healthcare, it's multiples of eight, but in tech, it's tech. like in 20 plus. 20 yeah. plus. And here's another thing about tech. Tech will give you a multiplier of top line revenue. Remember I'm talking about EBIT does after, after expenses that's, and taxes. I mean, it's after expenses. That's net. It's net. Tech is gross. Gross. <laughs> so you're doing a million dollars a year, you're getting 10, 15, that's 15 million. 15, yeah. Mm-hmm. You get a couple of contracts, now you're 40 million. I mean, and you're just doing tech. So. Why is that? Because tech is just so explosive and it's just the. Because it's scalable. Growth, so scalable. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if, if it works here, you'll work anywhere. And it's, it's not. Once you've vi- built a tech and it has an application, what it costs to scale it is minimal. But services, you get in more people, you have more infrastructure, more blah, blah, blah. So tech is a sexy place to be. So the dude connects me with the company, and then they end up investing, giving me an anchor contract. And, and so now we're actually at the close stages of winning, appears to be winning a statewide contract to provide telehealth services. And, and, and we have another company that we're looking to do business with, a few more. And so Teladoc, so what's the revenue, since this, you said you started with like a dollar, how much is it now? I mean, well, we still got. I'll say Jet Doc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a competition. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask him about that. So, Jet Doc, um, you started with a dollar. How much is it now? So, it doesn't matter, really, because now it's it's, uh, $20 a month, but, or $10 a month for unlimited, but it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but it's not my priority. That's direct to consumer. So, people in Georgia and Florida can still call Jet Doc, see a doctor, get a discount medication, boom, it's all easy. Pay that 20 bucks a visit. But what I've transitioned into is business to business. So that's when I was sharing with Troy earlier. Um, there's an opportunity where, you know, I'm going to address homelessness. It's, it's a major problem, which means a major opportunity. What we found, again, through my math, uh, when I did it in D.C., is an average person spends 5x more expensive if they're also homeless. The average expense per year is about 20 grand a year. So somebody's homeless, on average, they cost us $20,000 a year. That's the entire Medicaid, managed care industry. Well, so yeah, some folks that are homeless, it costs 20 grand a year. Remember, you only get paid 5,000 a year. So each person, you're losing 15 grand. 
But then you have other people who don't see the doctor at all. You're sitting pay five grand a year. So, you know, you get, you get paying out zero, but you're getting 5,000. So kind of to a degree, not always average way out, but you know, it gets close to it. And that's where the 2% profit margin comes from. And you shake all that out. But homelessness is a big problem. It's the biggest impact on the healthcare industry. And no one really talks about. So, and we've had homeless people that were using the emergency room 15, 20, 30 times a month. Right. Knowing what to say to be admitted inpatient. Meaning inpatient means they spend not in the hospital at least one night. So somebody wants to get a meal, they want to just stay in the hospital, or for whatever reason, they want to get some more medications, maybe because they need them, maybe because they want to sell them, who knows? They know what to say to get it, and then the insurance companies are paying the bill. Or it's just cold down there. Just- it's cold, whatever, whatever, right? But it costs money. If somebody yeah. goes inpatient, baby, it costs $15,000. And you mm-hmm. can't turn somebody down. <clears throat> no. So it costs 15000 right? Well... If they stay on average, which is five nights, I'm paying $3,000 a night. Back, they could be staying with me at the Plaza Hotel in the penthouse suite. Yeah. That's what I'm paying. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity is getting folks that are homeless into housing. Um, and uh, there's a big opportunity. I was giving you some quick math, Troy. Yeah. In Oakland, California, we're talking to a big company. Let's say they have 10,000 members, $20,000 a year. That means they're spending $200 million a year on homeless members, on healthcare for their homeless, $200 million a year. I... Proved it in D.C. I cut my homeless members in half by fifty in half, which is fifty percent, and the cost came down accordingly. So if I took a two hundred million dollar baseline and I cut it in half, that means hundred million dollars in savings. If I got half of that, I made fifty million dollars, and they made fifty. They saved fifty for giving me the contract. It's a lot of money. So it's that's that's the revenue model. It's not really the, the consumer. It's more business, business, to business. and government yeah. government contracts too. That's government or business to business. So another company like the one that I had. I can go contract with them and say, I know how to save money. I was doing, I was doing 10%, 12% profit margins. Yeah. You're doing, you're trying to do two. I can help you. So, so that, that, that is a formula for Oakland. We know homelessness is a huge problem in LA as well. Yeah. It, can that also be replicated here? hundred percent. The thing is I'm friends with the CEO of a big health plan in Oakland. In Oakland. Okay. So relationships, right? Relationships. But, but once you pilot anything anywhere and successful, then yeah, you can do hundred percent. Yeah. So the whole idea of virtual Doctor visits, Teladoc is is um, a well known company, who's a publicly traded company, um, but people are still a little leery about this. So you have a virtual doctor visit. What? Because I've never done this before. Can you kind of explain to me what is a virtual doctor visit? Because I'm assuming that is some it's limitations involved. Like you can only see somebody. You can't right. like hit the elbow and bang the knee, check that cough and all that. So like. How, did, how does that work, and do you think that this is something that will be the normal moving forward? I do. Um, in, the current, in the current state of technology and its limitations, most telehealth visits are, you know, you have flu symptoms or maybe you think you may have COVID symptoms or you got a headache, you need some strong Advil or something that you don't need to see a doctor. You know it, and a doctor knows it. You don't need to see them uh, in person, and so you download the app, and you basically are like a Zoom call, a FaceTime with the doctor, and you talk to them about your symptoms, and they're going to prescribe your medication. And then in JetDoc, then the doctor will automatically send the script to wherever pharmacy you feel is most uh, convenient for you. You go pick it up, you get eighty five cent off the cost of medication. The discount card is embedded in the app. Where healthcare is going is more sophisticated technology, which we're on the forefront of that with this contract we have, I was just sharing with you, where we're including with our app, integrated remote patient monitoring. So folks that are diabetic, 
need glucometers to measure the sugar, the blood in their sugar, the uh, sugar in their blood. Um, and so we're integrating like a pulse oximeter to see what their, you know, uh, their heartbeat is, but we're, we're integrating these into our app. So it's fully integrated. So now you can have, you know, um, devices that have advanced, um, uh, what's the word? Photography capabilities. So you can actually see more clearly than your iPhone what's going on. So you can actually use devices or smart scales to get more information. So you're actually replicating an in-person visit without being in person. Yeah. So that technology is on the way, and we're in the forefront of it. We're building this integrated um, application with JetDoc to have 20 remote patient monitoring devices fully integrated to the system. So but pre-COVID in the telehealth space, there was an average of about projected average of about 800,000 visits, <clears throat> 800,000 visits a month. Obviously, post-COVID, that number has run to like over a billion, a billion over visits. Billion. So that means a lot of people in the space. Yeah. So what's JetDoc's plan to separate it? Because I know uh, Shadi mentioned a company that's competition. How do you separate yourselves from the rest of the competition? The reality is I got to figure out what I want to do. So, you know, there's so much room. First of all, I answer your question. There's a lot of room. Mm-hmm. There's room galore. And there's room galore, direct to consumer. There's so many different pockets of opportunity. So whether you focus on mental health, you focus on this niche over here. There's a telecompany that's been very successful doing trans, transgender care. So mm-hmm. transgender or, or transgender uh, friendly or what have you. And all the, the members are transgender because they have their own healthcare issues. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it's very focused. So what's happening now is the telecompanies are trying to figure out what the niche is, right? STDs is a big niche. So figure out what the niche is. There's a lot of opportunity for it, for niching direct to consumer, but also when you do direct to business, I mean, how many businesses are there? There's a trillion of them. So there's always things you can try, do something new and different, which means opportunity to grow B2B is pretty massive as well. But when I was saying I got to figure out what I want to do is, you know, how far do I want to take it? You know, if you asked me a year ago, two years ago, I'll tell you I'm going to take it all away. You know, publicly trade it, own it, control it, make it a legacy business. Am I there right now? I, you know, I don't know. I'm still thinking about that. So do I just want to create it, create value, and then sell it and have another hit? And maybe get into TV? Prince of Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> now with Dame Dash, you know what I mean? Stay, stay uh, tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. But, but that's the decision you know, entrepreneurs had to make is, you know, where the passion lies and is it still burning? Let me ask you this before we wrap. Um, some general questions. You say you wrote the book, Medicare, Medicaid. We always hear these issues that, you know, it's so flawed. And you said, can you give us one of the solutions that you have in the book or something that, why is it so flawed and what are some, like at least one thing you'll that understand. you think can be done to fix it? You'll understand it. It's um, get rid of mandatory medical loss ratio requirements. So I shared with you earlier, out of $100 we receive in revenue, we are required by law to spend $85 out of 100, so 85% on the direct cost of care hospital, doctor, pharmacy, dental, transportation, et cetera. Well, if you spend 85% of your dollar every year, medical cost inflation is 2%. It's been 2% forever, which means next year you're going to be spending your total cost. So the government's going to pay the total cost. The taxpayers are paying it. So 85, it's like compound interest. 80, what was 85% is not 85.2%. Right. And then the next year is 85.2 plus another 2%. So 
So not 85.2, because 2% of 85 is great net, right? It's like 1.7. So now it goes up to 87%. So every year, the cost of healthcare keeps going up because of inflation. And you're requiring folks to spend that money. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah. So every year, the cost of healthcare goes up. That's why it's crazy. What, what you want to do is get rid of mandatory medical loss ratio requirements and then incentivize companies to reduce the total cost of care for their membership. And by doing that, they would, what should be the case is if they reduce their costs, they actually get more contracts with governments to do more business. That's usually how it works. Like Walmart, lower the cost, the more business you get. But the way government has said it is they have these mandatory medical loss ratio requirements, which means you have to spend 85% of your money. And if you spend less than that, it's not legal. Well, the reason they do that, <clears throat> they, the government has done that, is what they have been afraid of are insurance companies skimping on care for the purposes of retaining it as profit. So let's say Troy needs to go you know, get some imaging done. He has some heart palpitation or something. He wants it to get checked out. They're worried that me as an insurance company, let's say I'm Blue Cross Blue Shield and he's my, my member, I say, no, Troy, you can't go get this, image, this imaging service because it's not a covered benefit or I just don't want you to do it because it, you know, it's going to cost me $1,000 a year insurer. So to protect against that, to protect the people, they make these mandatory medical loss ratio requirements. But the truth is, in healthcare, because if somebody goes to the emergency room, by law, the hospital has to see the person, and by law, I got to pay the bill, then the percent of spending that can really be affected by me trying to skip on services is like less than 10%. So it's really like 7%. So if I can only affect 7%, why are you forcing the system to overspend on the other 93%? You dig what I'm saying? What should be the case, like anything in capitalism, is if I can get my costs lower, I should be able to get more business. I should be incentivized to get my costs down. And the only way to really get costs down in healthcare is get people healthier. It's what I explained to you on, on the homeless issue. I cut my costs in half because I got half my people housing. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting down at 65% medical loss ratio, which the government thought was a bad thing, which is why they forced me to get out of the, out of the, the industry, where 65% is a good thing. Because guess what happens? If, if I'm at 65 and the system is set to where I get more business because I'm a lower cost provider than my other competitors, then guess what? The big companies that are in health insurance will now actually compete to get their costs lower. So if I had an impact doing things with homelessness and all this other stuff I did, reducing, you know, man, I had people, man, I had thousands of people who I stopped from, from being hooked to dialysis for the rest of their life. I call it dialysis row. If somebody has an A1C, which is basically uh, measuring the blood, the sugar in someone's blood, if, if, they're, if it's five and a half or greater, that means they're diabetic. So if it's less than five and a half, they're pre-diabetic. No, actually less than seven. Yeah, less than seven. You know, less than seven. But I had people, but then you, let's say they have A1C 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that means any day they could, be in a, they could require dialysis. And that's a, that's a bad thing because now they dialysis every day for the rest of their life until they get a transplant or they die. I had some, thousands of people, thousands of people because I looked at my data. Who had A1Cs that were over seven? Who had A1Cs that were growing over a period of time, right? They had a, a 7.5, now they had a nine. Uh-oh, I better focus on these people, get them into care, get them a glucometer that give me real-time notification when it spikes and then my staff is going to reach out to them, what do you have for lunch? Oh, you think it's healthy to eat, eat food all the time. Guess what? Not so much. You know, what are you doing in changing behaviors, right? Yeah, fruit, fruit, right? Yeah, a lot of times fruit. People it, think fruit it, is... It breaks down your body as sugar. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool goes. Oh, no question. So people think they're doing something healthy, but it's killing. But listen, listen, people, watch this. 
thousands of people, thousands of people, my aunt included, and and uh, many people y'all know included. But my aunt was on um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis since uh, like the last 34 years. Well, to treat rheumatoid arthritis is medications, and most of them attack the kidney, right? So over time, it'll deteriorate the kidney, and before you know it, they need dialysis. But not because of lifestyle or eating habits, it's just because they're on a medication to treat something, and instead it burns the kidney up, and now she's on dialysis. We had thousands of people that we identified through medication they were on, how long they were on it, um, they had A1Cs that were rising, that we moved A1C from being in the hotbed, the hotland of any day now, you could be on dialysis, dialysis row, to being pre-diabetic. Lifestyle, behavior changes. Thousands of people, because I care. Diet. Diet, Next, diet. most of it's diet. And medication compliance. Mm. A lot of people don't take the medication. Why? Sometimes it makes them shit. Or, or dialysis. Or not dialysis, diarrhea. Right, so you have side effects. Man, so much healthcare can be fixed. But here's my real point. My point is we identified all these triggers and we did something about it. And through doing something about it, we gave people longer life, healthier life, folks we avoided, folks on dialysis and, and all those impacts. But not only that, we save a lot of money in the process. Because when somebody is on dialysis, guess what it costs us every year? 85000 When you include dialysis and them going to the emergency room a couple of times to be an inpatient, $85,000 a year. But I'm only getting paid 5000 which means I'm losing $80,000 per person on dialysis. So what did I do? I'm getting out in front. Save that moment. Preventive measures, yeah. But what happens there? I save money and people have better, healthier lives, right? But that's little old Tommy Duncan because Tommy Duncan was also, I care about people and the profit goes in my own pocketbook. So I'm doing these things which are making a big difference. The big companies aren't doing them. But if they actually incentivize, if you get your costs lower, which you can only do it doing things I just shared with you, then the big companies would actually do what I'm doing and they would do it way better because they have all the resources in the world. But right now they have no incentive to do it. Instead, the incentive is just keep things status quo, which is why healthcare outcomes are status quo and the cost of the system keeps going up every year. And the governor and the governments don't do shit. So how do we it. how do we change it? Get political action. Political action, man. You just got to get political action, man. You got to get black governor. That's my that's my that's my headline. Get a get a black governor. That's what you need to do. When's the last black governor in America? It was we in, 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 in uh, Virginia, New York. Oh, the last Ryan one. Guy. But that was that wasn't real long. Yeah, yeah. he was the governor. <laughs> no, no disrespect to Patterson, but he wasn't elected. No, he wasn't elected, that's but right. he served as. For, yeah, for, for and then he like got two kicked, years. And he, he got, got, out of, got him out of there. But you got somebody coming in, like this. eyes wide open. You got it. You yeah. know what they're doing. Virginia, that was the last elected black governor. Yeah, this guy named uh, I can't remember his name. But you need somebody really coming in, you know, with a plan and know what they're doing. They got a squad. You know, they have relationships now. You know, but even but even with the governor, like even if it's a black governor, it's like I feel like, and you know better than me, obviously, but this billions of dollars that's made in people being sick. Like, you might have been losing money, but there's other companies and other people that's actually making money from people being sick. Yeah, treatment, medicine. Hospitals. Hospitals. Yeah, it's okay. Pharmaceutical companies. companies. Yeah, it's okay. So yeah. the lobby, yeah. is, it might be, you know, too strong to push it, no matter who's the president or the governor or... I, I agree with that, but um, somebody has to have audacity. And eliminating medical loss ratio actually can be viewed as a positive thing, even for the, uh, the biotech companies. Because then they would start to design things and, and, and market to the provider groups and insurance companies 
what can actually keep people healthier and out the hospital. This medication is better or different for this reason. The government has taken the stance because of what I shared earlier that if you do not police the insurance companies from skimping on care, they will skimp on care and that will be to the detriment of the public. And what I'm sharing with you is the way the system is designed from the inside, the only skimping you could do is no more than 7% of total spending. So you're sacrificing 93% because of the 7%, which happens all the time. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Prince of Detroit has spoken. Another classic. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you, brother. So what 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 do the people need to tap in? What can you say your information, uh, all of the information that you have about JetDoc, Instagram, website, all of that stuff? I'll do it all. But before I do, I just want to make the comment. Any entrepreneurs out there, do your research on your business. You know, research the industry. What are the success rates? What are the failure rates? And failure rates are okay, but why do they fail? Um you know, calculate your risk. Don't just jump out there. Calculate it. You know, particularly if you're an adult, meaning you have, you know, responsibilities and you just can't just quit your job. I know so many people just quit their job, think they're going to open a business, then the business doesn't work. Then they don't have a job or a business. Um, you know, all of my businesses, I started, I had something already going, right? I had this going, I started mine, so I calculated my risk. Yeah, I could lose it all. I could lose a lot, but I ain't going to lose it all. At the time I started my DC business, I had a son. I was married with a son, and my wife was pregnant, right? So I did these things. Again, I calculated my risk. So do your research. Understand your industry. Understand what is the best upside. Are you going into a lifestyle business, meaning you just want to be profitable and you make a, a million dollars a year, and, you, you know, if that's the highest upside, that's a great lifestyle, but know that's what you're getting into. Or are you trying to do a value creation business? Do what I did. You create something that may take a little more time, Maybe it goes fast because of technology, but guess what? Now you sell it for $100 million, a billion dollars, and then you actually get a lump sum of money. And I'm going to tell you this. When you get a lump sum of money, it's a beautiful thing. You can make $5 million a year. That sounds good, right? You can make $10 million a year, but then you got half the taxes, and then you got the lifestyle. You got a big house. You're living out here. You got 1,000 cars. You know? You're spending your money. But you get that lump sum, that big check, and that money be working for you. You ain't got to work. That money working. You dig what I'm saying? Like, my money works. I ain't got to do S-H-I-T, my money be working in the stock market. In this, it's just working on its own. And that's where I decided I wanted to be, and that's where I'm at. But really know what you're trying to get into and what you're trying to get out of it. You know, do your research, do your homework. When I won a contract in D.C. is because I did, in addition to all the things I talked about, right? I, you know, I did the political stuff, the government contracts to people, and all that kind of smooth stuff. But also, I put together the best plan for the district. Right, understood where the power was. It was in D.C. I understood the program for CBE, the, for the Minority Business of D.C. I understood uh, all the healthcare. Can, all the I read every article about healthcare in D.C. D.C. is broken up by ward, eight wards, like boroughs, probably New York. I understood the health issues of each borough in New York, and I put together a plan for it. And so, anyway, I just really advise people to do their homework. You know, calculate risk, do your homework, but take risk, right? My shirt says what? High risk. I'm a high risk, high reward guy, you know? But, uh, you know, if you want more, you got to do more. That being said, Tommy2Duncan on IG, at Tommy2Duncan, JetDoc, uh, MyJetDoc uh, my on IG, JetDoc.com. The Prince of Detroit film, go check that out. Prince of Detroit film, that's what I'm doing. I'm having fun with that. And I got other things popping. But what I love to do more than anything, Rashad and Troy, is talk about entrepreneurship to help people be successful. I feel like that's what's, what's missing in our community is real mentorship. 
on kind of ropes to skip, the ropes to know, and I feel like y'all are doing it. And so I appreciate you having me on the show to do my little part. All right, thank you. Appreciate thank you, man. I'm glad we was able to connect. Definitely look forward to, you know, establishing a stronger relationship. Tons and tons of information, and it's one of these things where we don't know a lot about, you know, yeah. type of informational topics when it comes to healthcare. And um, just to have somebody, you know, that we can relate to, that's kind of been the formula for our, our success is just bring people on that people can relate to and, and break down very complex situations and make them understandable. And that's what you did. So thank you for joining us, brother. Can I, I do one more thing? For sure. One more thing. All right. Um, right now, because of social media, every industry is up for disruption. It's the first time in history. So before, you know, most... Black people, um, folks who come from where we come from, uh, had barriers, right? Resources, know-how. I talked about that, like real mentorship, but even access to resources. How do you get to clients? It costs money to market. Now, through social media, I promise you, everything is up for disruption. You could start a hot sauce company. Market that hot sauce. And before you know it, you'll be big and red hot. You look around pillows, anything you can see, it's all up for disruption. And it's the first time in history that's the case where people can go from um, whatever they're doing to become a billionaire overnight because they can talk directly to consumers. That's like us. We, I was gonna say. we disrupted the whole industry when it comes to finance. And we have a show called Market Monday. Shout out to Ian, our partner on that. And um, it's like massively successful show every single Monday. We talk about stocks and investing. So shout out to Josh Brown. Josh Brown is on CNBC um, and he's been on Wall Street for like 30 years. Good guy. So he was talking and he was like, um, yeah, earn your leisure. They got the show. And he was like, they're, they're influencing financial markets. He's like, there's like 7,000 people watching the show live. Like they're influencing financial markets more than anybody on the street. Jeez. I, he said that and that was crazy. But it's true. Crazy. And it's like, you know what I'm saying? So crazy. what you just said is like, it's, that's game changing, man. Yeah. Yeah. The disruption at its finest. So I'll leave you with this. Make sure, you know, as you're doing what you're doing, have somebody legal doing your research, keep y'all in compliance. Because the more powerful you get, they'll be coming at you. Yeah, that's what Dame, Dame said. Dame just yesterday. said that. Yeah. You know, he just said that to us last night. That's what Dame said yesterday. That's a fact. That's a fact. No, I appreciate that, brother. Definitely, definitely. Troy, housekeeping items? Oh, uh, man. I want to, I want to, Dame also said that we should mention this, that, there was a wolf of Wall Street. This is the wolf of healthcare. Yeah, the wolf of healthcare. The wolf of healthcare. And I hear the word Prince of Detroit, but we might have to nominate him for another title because <laughs> <laughs> this is this is pretty legendary. Um, that being said, shout out to Jet Talk. And one of the things I know that you guys pride yourself on is affordability and accessibility. And so I want to encourage people just to check it out. Mm-hmm. Just check it out. Um, but yeah, shout out to everybody on Patreon.com. That is our Proud to Pay program. Uh, shout out to all the earners that are on there. Shout out to everybody in EYL University. Staff has grown, y'all. Shout out to the earners. And uh, shout out to everybody uh, with the merch. I know y'all see us with the exclusive merch. Oh, speaking of Detroit, shout out to my boy Chill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know him? Nah. That's Southwest T's son. Um, and he gave me this merch. He's real. He's a friend, of, good friend it's of ours. Ve- it's very rare when we wear something that's yeah, not yeah, ours. I hardly ever wear anything. <laughs> but my man Chill, they just got in the, uh, the legal marijuana business. They're working okay. with Al Harrington. Shout out to Al Harrington, Viola. Yeah. And they got a strand. And um, this was the drop of his new strand. So shout out to Chill. Shout out to his dad, Southwest. He got a chance to chop it up with him. Good guy. Shout out to all the guys in Detroit, man. Yeah. Real, real solid, old school type of just get money. Yeah. 
You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a good vibe out there. Like, like that's I, my I really city. Like yeah, that's yeah, my city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah. Yeah, I like it, man. So yeah. shout, shout out to my boy, Chill, man. Yeah, but again, shout, shout out to the merch team. Shout out to our boy, uh, Mike, I Bogard, uh, for the exclusive drops. We got something that we brewing, y'all. Trust me, it's going to be major. Uh, yeah, love is love. Thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. My graduates from my school being Forbes, backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> A mic drop. Bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs>